Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be looking at competing Federalist and Anti-Federalist visions of judicial review in the letters of Publius and Brutus, and we will be talking about Brutus's neglected thesis on judicial supremacy. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, it has been a while since I have gotten a show out to you guys, and that is actually because I am working on one right now that I started doing very suddenly um, on the COVID mandates, and that is because there is a lot of strangeness with that uh, that I think almost no one is picking up on, and it largely has to do with the method of enforcement that Biden is using and the way that he is unilaterally using administrative law to make what should only ever be legislative decisions. And look, even if you think the COVID mandates in and of themselves are a good thing, that we should be doing them, you can still hold that view. And I assure you, when I do my next episode, you will hardly believe how corrupt and backwards the approach to those mandates being taken is. And the reason he can get away with this is because all, really almost no one understands administrative law. And that is for a very good reason, because unless you are an executive branch regulatory agency or a business that is regulated by an executive branch regulatory administrative agency, you have no reason to know or care about administrative law. This is the same reason that people tend to not know anything about international law, because people... I have found, with very few exceptions, are not nation-states. There's no reason to know it. And this is a corruption that I'm talking about, because you are being told that you have to obey a series of rules that technically have the force of law, but are not laws themselves and cannot apply to individuals. Now, that show still needs a few more days. I am reading through uh, everything and taking notes, and there are a lot of changes to the Federal Register and the Code of Federal Regu Regulations that are going on right now because of that. It's been very tedious and time-consuming, and so I want to make sure that I am getting a full picture that I can bring and present to you, dear viewer, uh, so you can have a comprehensive understanding of this topic uh, delivered, hopefully, in an interesting format, uh, and most importantly, discussed in a manner that can easily be understood by lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So, today, I do have a great episode for you. I have had this episode in the can for just such an occasion. We are going to be talking about the conceptual and legalistic origins of the meanings of judicial review, and we are going to be pitting the anti-federalist Brutus against the Federalist Publius, and a Founding Fathers grudge match of awesomeness. And we will be getting to that in just a moment. 
Now, one of the most striking and unique and hotly debated aspects of our system of government is judicial review. Where precisely, though, does this doctrine arise from? Well, technically from Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1, quote, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, end quote. However, as most people will point out, if you aren't already familiar with the interpretation of that clause, it is not immediately apparent to assume judicial review as a doctrine that can logically be derived from that bit of text. So, who first looked at that clause and deduced that that clause gave the judiciary the power to invalidate laws? Now, when you ask this question, there are two answers you tend to get back, depending on what the people think you mean. If they think you are talking about an expression in fact or in theory. If they think you mean an expression in fact, they will say, well, it comes from Marbury versus Madison when John Marshall used judicial review to invalidate aspects of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Now, if the person uh, means uh, that you are talking about the first time it was clearly expressed in theory, they will tend to uh, talk about Alexander Hamilton's discussion of judicial review in Federalist 78. The problem is, both of these answers are wrong. Marbury was not even close to the first time that judicial, was, judicial review was used to invalidate a law, and Federalist 78 was actually part of a public debate that played out in the newspapers between the two founders writing under the pen names of Brutus and Publius, now, Brutus is most commonly believed to be Robert Yates. I personally think it's much more likely that he is, in fact, Melanchthon Smith, but this is debated. Uh, and I, I'm sure most of you know, Publius was technically three founders, uh, Madison, John Jay, and Hamilton. The letters that we will be talking about through this series are Federalist 78 through 81, all written by Alexander Hamilton. Now... I think most people people familiar with Federalist 78 don't actually realize that the entire letter is specifically written as a point-by-point counter-argument responding to Brutus's what we now know as his 8th and 11th essays. And that really, Brutus's 8th through 15th essays and Federalist 78 through 81 are a back-and-forth dialogue that played out in the newspapers in real time back then. And the fact is, when they are read in that proper context, so much of what people think they know about Federalist 78 and its meaning changes drastically. I would go as far as to say that you can't truly understand Federalist 78 unless you are aware of and familiar with the essays of Brutus that precede 78. And that is what we are going to be doing today. We are going to be examining the essays of Brutus and the original first word on the existence of the meaning of judicial review under Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1. We will then be looking at Publius's reply. This is a long episode. This may be split up into two episodes. We're going to see how time goes here. I'll try and get it all into one, uh, but... Uh, we'll either be doing all of it or we'll be doing Brutus today and you'll be getting Publius tomorrow. Uh, so anyways, 
before we get into this, though, I, I want to ask you guys, please, uh, please let me know down in the comment section what you think about this format, because there are uh, countless examples of founding era literature that should also be presented in this light and be presented in a back and forth conversational context. Uh, instead of the kind of uh, truncated view of history that we usually view it as. So if you guys find this format of providing a chronological sequence of events, it gives a much fuller context and meaning that you would otherwise get reading just Publius or just Brutus. Uh, or And this extends to many uh, of the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists. And reading their letters in a vacuum, uh, as most people do, it just, it just, it, it, it's a completely different context to take them and put them in a back and forth conversational debate sort of deal. So let me know if this is something that you would like to see me do more often as something of an ongoing series on this channel, because there are just countless examples uh, of, of founders that their writings, we could do that with. So just let me know down in the comment section what you think. Now, it is noteworthy that whenever Marbury versus Madison uh, is discussed in works on constitutional law, uh, via textbooks or casebooks, there is always a reference invariably made to Alexander Hamilton's discussion of judicial review in 78. This is always cited as an early indication that the principle was regarded as a fundamental part of the system of government that was set up under the Constitution. Now, surprisingly, these works, I have never found any, uh, they, they all fail to refer to the anti-Federalist letters of Brutus, to which Federalist 78 constitutes a response. So this is really a regrettable omission, because 78 cannot be properly understood except in the context of Brutus's charge that the Constitution provided not only for judicial review, but that judicial review would create judicial supremacy. Now, Federalist 78 and its succeeding numbers represent merely the other half of a dialogue over Brutus's claims of judicial review and judicial supremacy as both being inherent under the Constitution. Moreover, Brutus's view on judicial supremacy constitutes a novel thesis which, to date, has not been sufficiently appreciated. Now, Hamilton's counter-argument, mainly in Federalist 78 through 81, viewed in the light of Brutus's thesis, is seen to obfuscate the issue of judicial supremacy and, in effect, leaves Brutus's thesis ultimately unimpaired. Now, it is precisely this interplay of dialogue between Brutus and uh, between Hamilton that we will be exploring today on the show. So we're going to start by talking about judicial review and national consolidation. Now, perhaps the first thing to note is that Brutus did not question the right of the court's to exercise 
judicial review. Quoting from Brutus 12, Perhaps if the legislature passes laws which, in the judgment of the court, they are not authorized to do by the Constitution, the court will take notice of them, for it will not be denied that the Constitution is the highest or supreme law, and the courts are vested with the supreme and uncontrollable power to determine in all cases that come before them what the Constitution means, and cannot, therefore, execute a law which, in their judgment, opposes the Constitution unless we can suppose they can make a superior law give way to an inferior one. In acknowledging that judicial review was within the province of the court, Brutus went on to outline the corollary, saying, quote, The judgment of the judicial on the Constitution will become the rule to guide the legislature in their construction of these powers, since the legislature will not go over the limits by which the courts may adjudge they are confined, end quote. What concerned Brutus in the first instance was to the use to which the courts would apply judicial review in the service of national consolidation and how this would threaten the independence of the survival of the states. The judicial power, Brutus warned, would operate to affirm and legitimate all the invasions of state power committed by the national legislature. He said the real effect of the system of government will be brought home to the feeling of the people through the medium of the judicial power. Therefore, he said that it was of great importance to examine with care the nature and extent of the judicial power because those who are vested with it and to be placed in a situation altogether unprecedented in a free country, they are to be rendered totally independent both of the people and of the legislature. So, every extension of the power of the general legislature, as well as the judicial powers, will increase the power of the court. And the dignity and importance of the judges will be in proportion to the extent and magnitude of the powers that they exercise. Thus Brutus found the judicial power will operate to effect in the most certain, but yet silent and imperceptible manner, what is evidently the tendency of the Constitution. By this he meant an entire subversion of the legislative, legislative, executive, and judicial powers by the individual states. Of the individual states. Of the individual states. Apologies. So, by legitimating the expansive exercise of federal power, the courts would be contributing to the aggrandizement of the national government at the expense of the states, and the institution of a federal system of government which presumed a meaningful role for the states in partnership with the national government would be seen as a mere sham. Brutus said, quote, The opinion of the Supreme Court, whatever they may be, will have the force of law because there is no power provided in the Constitution that can correct their errors and control their adjudication from this court, there is no appeal, he said. 
and presumably the legislature itself could not set aside a judgment of this court, he said, because they are authorized by the Constitution to decide in the last resort, and the legislature must be controlled by the Constitution, and not the Constitution by them. Now, given the power of the judiciary, it will, Brutus said, enable them to mold the government into any shape they please, end quote. Now, it was important in Brutus's view to appreciate that the court would be free to interpret the Constitution, quote, not only according to its letter, but according to its spirit and intention. And having this power, they were strongly inclined to give it such construction as to extend the powers of the general government as much as possible to the diminution and finally the destruction of that of the respective states, end quote. Now, when Brutus talks about the spirit of the Constitution, what Brutus claimed, uh, this can be deduced from the preamble to the Constitution, which included the comprehensive term to provide for the general welfare. So, Brutus reasoned, if the spirit of the system is to be known from its declared end and design in the preamble, its spirit is to subvert and abolish all the powers of the state governments and to embrace every object to which the government extends. End quote. Now, this conclusion is confirmed by the powers enumerated in Article 1, Section 8, which he said, quote, extend to almost everything about which the legislative power can be employed, end quote. And so, Brutus contended that nothing can stand before it, uh, such as a national legislature. This was particularly so in view of the expansive nature of the necessary and proper clause, which would, Brutus said, undoubtedly be an excellent auxiliary to assist the courts to discover the spirit and reason of the Constitution. And, as a result, the powers of government would extend to every case and reduce the state legislatures to nothing. Now, this conclusion emerged in the following analysis taken from Brutus's eighth essay, where he said, These courts will have authority to decide upon the validity of the laws of any of the states in all cases where they come in question before them where the Constitution gives the general government exclusive jurisdiction, they will adjudge all laws made by the states in such cases void ab initio, where the Constitution gives the concurrent jurisdiction, the laws of the United States must prevail. Because they are the supreme law in such cases, therefore, the laws of the state legislature must be repealed, restricted, or so construed as to give full effect to the laws of the Union on the same subject, in proportion as the general government acquires power and jurisdiction by the liberal construction, which the judges may give to the Constitution, will those of the states lose its rights until they become so trifling and so unimportant as to not be worth having. 
Next, Brutus moves on to talking about judicial supremacy. So, beyond assessing the impact of judicial review on the stage, Brutus proceeded to analyze its effect on the national sphere as well. Here, he enunciated in very trenchant and indeed prescient comments the reason why the Supreme Court would come to exercise not only judicial review, but ultimately judicial supremacy. The fundamental principle of the ordered government, according to Brutus, is accountability. While separation of powers was indeed an essential requirement, he would argue, of sound government, accountability, he insisted, was no less essential an ingredient. Now, Brutus went on to say in his 11th essay that to have a government well administered in all its parts, it is requisite the different departments of it should be separated and lodged as much in different hands. The legislative power should be in one body, the executive in another, and the judicial is one different from either. But still, each of these bodies should be accountable for their conduct. Now, Brutus would go on to say in his 12th essay that when great and extraordinary powers are vested in any man or body of men, which in the exercise may operate to the expression of the people, it is of high importance that powerful checks should be formed to prevent abuse of it. The true policy of a republican government is to frame it in such a manner that all persons who are concerned in the government are made accountable and some superior for their conduct in office, this responsibility should ultimately rest with the people. So with regard to the legislature, Brutus explained the elected representatives are chosen by the people at stated periods and there are uh, four amenable to popular control. Inferior courts are subject to the control of the superior courts, but on this plan we last arrive at some supreme over whom there is no power to control but the people themselves. So the creation of an institution which is not accountable to uh, all or to any outside body is repugnant to the principles of a free government, and Brutus warned the Supreme Court under this constitution would be exalted above all other powers in the government and subject to no control. He said, I question whether the world ever saw in any period of it, a court of justice invested with so much immense powers and yet placed in a situation with so little responsibility. Now, in his search for what might have been a suitable means of uh, instituting accountability for the Supreme Court, Brutus refers to the president of the British judiciary when he says, The judges in England are under the control of the legislature for they are bound to determine according to the laws passed by them. But the judges, under this constitution, will control the legislature, for the Supreme Court are authorized in the last resort to determine what is the extent of the powers of Congress. They are to give the constitution an explanation, and there is no power above them to set aside their judgment. So if the framers of the Constitution followed the British precedent of making the judges independent, they should also 
followed the British Constitution by instituting a tribunal in which their errors may be corrected. Because in Britain, the judiciary was subject to appeals to the House of Lords by means of a writ of error, and the final disposition of a case was decided by the vote of all the Lords, the lay peers no less than judicial. In this comment, Brutus was referring to the fact that the judges under the British system were not only bound by the laws of Parliament, but did not operate as the court of last resort. In contrast, under the Constitution, the judicial power shall have a power which is above the legislative and which indeed transcends any power before given to a judiciary by any free government under heaven. In England, judges have been made completely independent so as to be undeterred from rendering judgment even when contrary to the wishes of the crown. There was no such necessity in the United States, and the absolute independence of judges without any accountability to any other body was quite unwarranted, he said. Bruce went on to point out how other crucial distinctions between the British and American system of government, such as the ability of Parliament to severely restrict the broader impact of an unwarranted and inappropriate judicial interpretation of the Constitution, is a power entirely lacking in the U.S. Constitution. And going to Brutus's 15th essay, he said, The Supreme Court then have a right, independent of the legislature, to give a construction of the Constitution in every part of it. And there is no power provided in the system to correct their construction to do away. And if, therefore, the legislature pass any laws inconsistent with the sense the judges put upon the Constitution, they will declare it void, and therefore, in their respect, their power is superior to that of the legislature. In England, the judges are not only subject to have their decision set aside by the House of Lords for error, but in cases where they give an explanation to the laws or constitution of the country contrary to the sense of Parliament, though the Parliament will not set aside the judgment of the court, yet they have the authority by a new law to explain a former one, and by this means to prevent a reception of such decisions, but no such power is in the U.S. legislature. The judges are supreme, and no law explanatory of the Constitution will be binding on them. He went on to say in his 15th essay that the end result was that there is no power above them to control any of their decisions. There is no authority that can remove them and they cannot be controlled by the laws of the legislature. In short, they are independent of the people, of the legislature, and of every power under heaven. Men placed in this situation will generally soon feel themselves independent of heaven itself. Now, Brutus dismissed the possibility that impeachment could serve as a factor to restrain the judiciary. Errors in judgment are not included under the heading of high crimes and misdemeanors, he explained. Likewise, he was not prepared to put his faith in the power of Congress under Article 3 of the Constitution to define the scope of the court's appellate jurisdiction. 
with such exceptions and under such regulations as it may prescribe, and to assume that Congress would make provisions against the evils which are apprehended from this article was to adopt a faulty reasoning, Brutus, Brutus insisted. Now returning to Brutus's 15th essay, he says, The way of answering the objection made to the power implies an admission that the power is in itself improper without restraint, and if so, why not restrict it in the first instance? For, to answer objections made to a power given to a government by saying it will never be exercised, is really admitting that the power ought not to be exercised and therefore ought not to be granted. This court, he went on to remind his readers, will be authorized to decide upon the meaning of the Constitution. On the basis of the natural meaning of the words, also according to the spirit and intention thereof as conceivable by the judges. In this exercise of the power, they will not be subordinate to but above the legislature. His conclusion was that when the power of deciding the meaning of the Constitution is lodged in the hands of the men independent of the people and of their representatives and who are not constitutionally accountable for their opinions, no way is left to control them but with a high hand and an outstretched arm. So really, in sum... Brutus was enunciating what was an entirely original explanation for judicial review, which he claimed would lead inexorably to judicial supremacy. The essence of Republican government, he contended, was accountability. In drafting the Constitution, the framers had been remarkably successful in instituting a system of checks and balances so that no single part of the national government was free of accountability. There was, however, he insisted, this one exception in the Supreme Court. The justices were not answerable to anybody at all. They were at liberty to interpret the Constitution in any way they saw fit, and no part of the government could qualify or reject their interpretation since they would be the last word. It was their interpretation that would have remained binding on all sectors of the federal government. Various theses have been offered to explain the basis of judicial review. Uh, now, the first uh, of Chief Justice John Marshall found it in the terms of the Constitution itself. He said the supremacy clause in Article 6 of the Constitution stipulated that only those laws that were made pursuant to the Constitution were valid. Others, in rejecting the textual basis of judicial review, found that it was a necessity because of the need for some institution to umpire the federal system. Still others deemed judicial review an essential uh, opportunist of a written Constitution. Both of the latter these would require the court to be quite restrictive in the exercise of judicial review. And there were yet others, such as Judge Learned Hand, who claimed that judicial review had no legal basis whatsoever under the Constitution. It was required 
only to prevent the collapse of the constitutional system, he said. Now, Brutus's argument is not that the text of the Constitution mandates judicial review or even, or even authorizes it, but that the structure of the Constitution allows for this creation of judicial review and therefore ultimately for judicial supremacy. Since there would be nothing to stop the court from declaring that a law was unconstitutional, it would, with impunity, proceed to do just that. The court, as it were, would be exercising constitutional jurisdiction by default. It was a failing of the architects of the Constitution, Brutus claimed, that they had created a body such as the Supreme Court entirely free of accountability. Judicial supremacy was not dictated by the Constitution. It was permitted under the Constitution because there was no power that could prevent the institution with the last say being the Supreme Court from telling the other branches of government what they were allowed or not allowed to do. So in short, Brutus contended that judicial supremacy was a direct consequence of the failure of the framers to institute some sort of check and balance on the Supreme Court and had been instituted on all other parts of the federal government. Now, Brutus's charge was clearly a severe remonstrance against the framers of the Constitution and demanded a detailed answer if it was not to serve as a rallying point against the ratification of the Constitution. It was uh, seen as unduly alarmist, and there was need to demonstrate, or at least to give the appearance of demonstrating, that the fears expressed were exaggerated and unwarranted. This was Hamilton's aim in Federalist 78, and the other numbers that followed. But this show is already running a little long, and so those are going to have to be another conversation for another day. So, I would be very grateful if you would just take a moment and uh, think of one friend you know who may... Uh, it be interested in hearing this information and uh, send this show to them to help me grow the channel that way. And if you would do that, I would be uh, very grateful for you. Uh, and uh, if you liked it, go ahead and let me know by hitting that thumbs up button. If you disliked it, let me know by hitting that uh, thumbs down button, I guess. Um, and then again, I, the, what I would love to hear from you guys in the comments, uh, besides obviously just generally, I... Uh, any comments you have about the show are always very welcome and appreciated, but I want to know if you guys would be interested in seeing more shows like this going forward in the future, where I do this chronological back and forth between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, so let me know that. Uh, and then, uh, if you guys are able to support the show, uh, you can do that in a number of ways. The best way is to uh, become a subscriber or patron, you can go to Patreon, Locals.com, or Anchor.fm, and at any of those sites for just the low, low price of two bucks a month, you can become a supporter of the show, uh, and 
you get all kinds of extra goodies when you sign up to become a, a, a regular subscriber or patron that way. Otherwise, if you want to make a uh, one-time donation, there's Venmo, PayPal. There's links to do all of that stuff down in the description below. If you're able to do that, I, I would be very grateful for it. If you're not able to do that right now, look, I totally understand. And I do uh, still very much appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. So be looking out, uh, I, I'm sure probably tomorrow, for the part two uh, to this video where we will be going over Hamilton's response to everything we heard about Brutus today. And then in a couple days, I will have the episode on the uh, on everything that is going on with the mandates. Uh, and that is going to be a bombshell. You are not going to want to miss that. It's going to be a great, great show. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess that's... Uh, Really, all that is left to say is that, uh, you know, thank you so much for watching. And this has been me, Locking Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about Brutus and Publius and Brutus's neglected thesis on judicial supremacy. And of course, uh, as always, Delenda S. Carthago. Fucker, like ELO, fucker.